This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 141st episode of the Quarterman Podcast, we're looking at Chase, number one from DC Comics, cover dated February 1998. But first, a little feedback. And as I was going through the old email account recently, I realized that I'd inadvertently skipped over some comments. So we are jumping back in time to pick up those, including some from Listener of the Year, Nathaniel Wayne. Dear Professor, you may still get a full bit of feedback from me on that Star Wars issue, but just listening to the feedback response got my mind thinking on your question of how ubiquitous twists are to short prose. I'd actually had some thoughts before, but presumed anything I had to say would be outclassed by what Tom or Stella might say. But if you can't have Coke products, would Pepsi be okay? That's right. I'm the begrudgingly accepted substitute podcast feedback. Whoa, 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 Nathaniel, just between us. I'm a much bigger Pepsi guy than Coke, so you're aces in my book, buddy. Just anecdotally, as both a reader and occasional writer of perennially rejected short stories, it does appear that some kind of turn or punchline is the norm, even across the genres. I think this is largely an inherent element of short fiction because unlike a novel, you don't have the space to engross the reader into deep characters or a complex world. So if you want something to stick in the mind after it's read, a twist, a well-executed twist, I should add, will pretty much do the trick. Looking back on my own short works, I realize that I have indeed employed either a twist or a reveal as part of each piece I've completed. The difference between the two that I'm about to offer is obviously based on intuition, but for my part, it's a question of degree. A twist makes the reader gasp. A reveal makes them go, Oh, okay. That's neat. Still, new information that reshapes the narrative, but not meant to be a gut punch or a rug pull. Broadly speaking, I try to do reveals more than twists. Twists are the more high-risk, high-reward option, where if you nail it, the reader will never forget it. And if you blow it, they also won't forget it, but for all the wrong reasons. A botched reveal usually won't cause an adverse reaction any stronger than, okay, so that's a bit weird. Anyways, we'll see if I have anything to say about the episode proper in later feedback. Keep up the good work. Hope you're enjoying the summer. I am. Thank you. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. I recently chatted with my buddy Trennis Magnus for an episode of his podcast that I have no idea when it's going to come out. But I brought up over there my preference for reveals over twists 
although I had a terrible time trying to differentiate between the two. I do like this differentiation that you make here, Nathaniel, about the matter of degree. Also, I think that if a reader could deduce it, or see it coming, or reasonably guess at it, it might be a reveal. But if there's no way to know what the author's about to do, as a reader, that might be a twist. Maybe. I'm still working on that. And as promised, Nathaniel also did indeed write in about the issue itself. This is from Quarterbin 138, the Tales from Mose Eisley issue. Hey, Professor. Tales from Mose Eisley was a fun listen for me. I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but I never got into Star Wars outside of the core films. Like, at all. Not the books, not the comics, not even really the toys. I didn't like how small they were compared to my Thundercats or He-Man figures. Even as I grew up and so many of my friends sang the praises of Thrawn and the Dark Horse comics and Mara Jade, I realized that I, quite simply, didn't care. Return of the Jedi felt like an ending. My heroes had won. They seemed happy. I liked them that way. And the thought of even more fighting and strife after that actively turned me off. I think I get that, Nathaniel. I don't feel that way about Star Wars, per se, but there are certainly properties about which I do feel that way. That's a keen insight there. So for that reason, our Listener of the Year continues, on a personal level, I find much more value in something like Tales from Mose Eisley, though I'll just as freely admit that I didn't read that kind of thing either. It's just that the idea appeals to me a bit more. One of the things I always liked about the vibe of the cantina scene in New Hope was that it felt like we could have followed literally any character out of that place and gone on a different, bizarre adventure. It's the kind of thing that makes the universe feel bigger, as opposed to having everything center around the same handful of characters, which makes the universe feel small and insular. They say it's a galaxy far, far away. And yet it keeps coming back to the damn Skywalker line. Enough already. Probably a big part of why I loved Rogue One and hated Solo. Yeah, I know, there are no Skywalkers. But they crammed in origins for nearly every errant detail about Han. Chewie, Lando, the Falcon, his freaking hanging dice into his first off-world adventure so he didn't even accumulate that stuff over time. What garbage. Anyways, you can refer to my previous emails about twists, as I feel it's applicable here as well. I actually really like the sound of the time travel thing, especially since it's framed through the lens of just some guy telling a story. It's the kind of thing that I'd never want definitively in Star Wars, but I like it as a goof that we don't have to assume is totally true. Great listening as always. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne, Council of Geeks. Great feedbacking as always, Nathaniel. Always thoughtful. And we heard from Carla, who talked about some of her recent cheap comic purchases. Always one of our favorite topics here. She starts by talking about buying some 10-packs from Ollie's. 
technically I shouldn't have spent the money because Wizard World Pittsburgh is coming this weekend, but I was worried that they would have been gone by the time I got back. So I got one of the two versions of the Batman movie tie-in comic. 1A is the issue that's worth a lot of money, but of course, my pack included 1B. Oh well. I also got a Betty and Veronica issue that was a special edition that New Dimension Comics gave away during the Three Rivers Comic Con a few years back. I wasn't living in Pennsylvania at the time, so I never actually saw it until now. And after some internet searching, I saw one that was selling for $14.99, so I thought that was a good pickup. Blessings, Carla. I wholly and completely approve of those purchases. Now, spoilers to listeners, but if you do listen to upcoming comics reading journal episodes, you'll hear Carla's name for sure, because she recently joined the hashtag comic book circle of life by sending me and M some of the stuff she nabbed in those Ollie's grab bags and stuff from Wizard World Pittsburgh. And we've gone over feedback from Billy D before, but like I said, I skipped a few along the way including this one, which is his first bit of feedback. I just wanted to chime in and tell you how much I enjoyed the two episodes I've listened to so far. The Marvel Team-Up 65 episode was a good one. That was episode 127, by the way, from about nine months back. I think this issue was still a hole in my collection, so it was fun listening to you talk about it. Time Warp number one is an issue I do have, but haven't read in quite a while. I pretty much remember it as you summarized the issue. Very good overall book with only one or two clunkers. Keep up the great work and thanks for what you do. Billy D, a.k.a. Doc Strange on Twitter. Billy D is also from Into the Weird and the Monsters and Magazines blog. P.S., Billy adds, and now I need to find some quarter bins. Yeah, I hear you on that one, man. Listeners, in or around eastern Pennsylvania, if you know of any places with cheap comics, let me and let Billy know. And we got a recent bit of feedback from Jeremiah Jones Goldstein, but it was about an old episode. Way back in 2018, Professor Allen did an episode of the Quarterbin Podcast discussing Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers. That was episode 116, by the way. It was a great podcast, the notorious JJG continues, and it inspired me to go out and find the comic myself. Today, I found the last couple of issues I needed to complete the run. He did add that he found all of those at prices I would appreciate, and I do indeed appreciate that. And he concluded with, the series is some wild fun, but I also appreciate it for its historical significance. Yes, unedited Kirby could be a little bit out there, but when it hit, it totally hit. And then on the last episode about Booster Gold, Karen from the Between the Pages blog reminded listeners to not skip through the start of the show. It's another of those wonderful and wacky secret origins. Laurel, aka Mountainflower One from the Huntress podcast, agreed with Karen saying that Herman did a wonderful job at narration. But then Karen 
asked a very controversial question. Professor, since you were made in Doom's image, does that mean that he is also a cheapskate? (sighs) Look, we prefer budget-conscious governmental leader, Karen. Thank you. Low taxes and a flourishing economy are among the many reasons that the people of Latveria love their beloved leader, okay? Patrick Delmore said he was really looking forward to this one. The whole series was collected in a showcase presents, and it looks great in black and white. Now, of course, we here at Quarterbin Enterprises International are supporters of the showcase presents line. A few of the popular ones are underprinted and thus marked up pretty high. But more often than not, showcases, and I guess I'll add the Marvel Essentials here too, I don't know as much about them, but it's probably the same situation, that they represent a pretty reasonably priced way to get a ton of comic book content. We also heard from Mark Sweeney from the late and lamented ITG cast, and he said he loved Booster's origin story. So wonderfully atypical. For a superhero. Also, if you have an issue with the stunted evolution of 25th century sports, you should probably stay away from Silver Age Legion stories, Professor. The giant Univax and analog election machines of the 30th century are a far cry from the cloud computing and precision polling of our planet even way back here in 2019. Now, that's probably a good point, Mark, but I'm betting that Brainiac 5 invented some pretty darn super smart high-tech punch cards for those big old computing machines. And no surprise, Nathaniel Wayne had a few things to say about this issue as well. Dear Professor, Booster Gold is one of those characters that more than a few of my friends really like but who I have yet to encounter in more than a passing supporting role, i.e. getting punched into space by Doomsday and the death of Superman. That said, I've always found the idea kind of intriguing, and what I hear about the tone sounds like it could be a good time as well. In response to your going into original characters and creator compensation, I was going to have more to say about the way these businesses operate, historically and currently, and then three paragraphs in, I realized I was composing nothing more than an anti-capitalist manifesto, and at that point I figured that I should probably just say, I get it, but it frustrates me to no end, and leave it at that. I get the frustration, buddy, I really do, but I think... You've just grown up a little bit. (laughs) Though if you have a screed to send, feel free. And a shout-out goes to Jason C., who answered a What Comics Podcast Do You Listen To? Twitter question with at relatively underscore geek, especially the Quarterbin shows. Ah, thank you, Jason. And we heard... For the first time, from Mike Zomkowski. Just found your podcast. Great 
Booster Gold episode. Thank you, Mike. Welcome to the show. Mike also wrote in a little bit later talking about how he is always looking for cheap comics during his business travels. Good man. And we got this from new listener and new feedbacker, Michael T. Geist, Professor. This has quickly become my favorite podcast. I just started listening about a month ago and have been binging Quarterbin and Comics Reading Journal episodes. Keep up the wonderful work. Those are very kind words, Michael. I really appreciate those. I mentioned this piece of feedback to M, who quickly reminded me to remind you to also listen to Shortbox Showcase, okay? <laughs> Last episode received social media love from the lovely Sutherlands, the not-as-lovely Shag Matthews from the upcoming V fan podcast, Make It Happen. Pat Sampson from the Longbox Crusade, that big fan hole, Derek William Crabb, Gene Hendricks of the Hammer Strikes, Al Sedano of the Resurrections Podcast, Bazinga Cal, Luke Giaconetti from the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, Full Metal Moose, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Eric Thibodeau, Old School Ross, Edmore from Teal Productions, Canada Daredevil, Chris from Bat Books for Beginners, Mick Splitter, Chris Fung, Nobody underscore 6000, Bill Bear, The Collected Editions Podcast, Randy Watts, and Tim Price. Appreciate all of the kind words and all the social media support. And that was a lot of feedback, but that's what happens when I skip over some emails for a few months. So let's take a break here, and I'm just going to go stand in the corner while I play the promo. And when we come back, I'll be properly chastened, and I'll be ready to talk all about Chase, Issue 1. Hey, Jared, I have a question. What's up? Well, I've been a part of the Longbox Crusade for about a year and a half now. Yeah? Well, that's not a question, man. I know. I'm getting to it. That was called Build Up. Like I was saying, I've been with the Longbox Crusade, and I have gone out and represented the show faithfully. That's still not a question. I'm still building up. I was wondering, could I be a part of the official promo? There's this great promo for the podcast that airs across podcast land, and it has Pat Sampson, the founder of the show, you, the art cell artist, and your brother, Jason, a.k.a. Weasel Skull. But it doesn't have me, Delvin Williams. The Dark Web. Could you ask the guys if they would let me be a part of the promotion since you were the one who invited me onto the show? Well, not to be a Mr. Quick to correct, but that was at least two questions. Still, I guess I'll ask. Let me go talk to the guys and you stay here. Okay, great. Thanks, man. Hey, guys. Hey, what's up, Jared? What's up, Jared? I have a question. Delvin's been with us for like a year and a half. That's not a question. Uh, yeah, I know. It's called Build Up. Hey, can we finally include him on the promo? It's the least we can do. He doesn't know that we're getting paid yet. And he never will. I mean, do we need him? After all, we already have the Longbox Crusade. And I provide awesome synopsis and insight on Crusader Chronicles. And I host Saturday Matinee Theater and also provide these nuts jokes. Hey, I do that. Me too. So we're fine as it is. What does Delvin do? We should just let him go. 
Wait, he hosts Transformers Chronicles. You should know that, Pat. You're on that show. So what do you say? Can we keep him? <sighs> Fine. Let's do it. Let's do it live. We could have done this with him in the room. It would have made more sense. Why is he outside? I think we were doing a bit. Okay, let's do this. The Longbox Crusade Podcast Network is the place to be if you like deep dives in the comics of yesteryear with the Longbox Crusade. Chronological reading journals with Crusader Chronicles, indexing forgotten TV shows, films, and serials with Saturday Matinee Theater, pitting two randomly selected action films against one another, an action film face-off, cataloging the Marvel run of the Transformers comic with Transformers Chronicles, and whatever else the demented minds of Pat, Jared, Jason, and Delvin can come up with. If that sounds like it might be for you, be sure to subscribe to The Longbox Crusade on iTunes, Google Play, and pretty much all reputable podcast feeds. Or check us out directly at www.longboxcrusade.com, where we continue our quest to... And we're back. Chase number one. Had a cover price of $2.50, meaning I acquired this from Half Price Books a few years back at a very nice and easy to calculate 90% discount. The cover of Chase number one by J.H. Williams III, Mick Gray, and Atomic Paintbrush shows a civilian looking woman with a gun held straight up. She is standing in front of a bank of TV or computer monitors, which feature images of a range of DC characters, including Martian Manhunter, Flash, Wally West, Clock King, Helena Bertinelli Huntress, Deadshot Catwoman, and others. And across the top of the cover is proclaimed, she tracks the world's most dangerous prey. It's a dramatic cover, a good logo, an intriguing cover. It does the job of focusing on a normal gal amidst a group of powered beings, both good and bad. I think it's effective. The story, Baptized in Fire, was written by D. Curtis Johnson with art by J.H. Williams III and Mick Gray. We open in Daly, Ohio. At the junior high, it's 8 a.m. in the cafeteria. A loner geek named Jerry gets into it with Chad. Calling Jerry a dweeb, Chad starts beating him up. But an explosive conflagration emanates from Jerry, filling the cafeteria with flames. We switch to New York City, where Cameron Chase is fighting traffic on her first day as an agent to the Department of Extranormal Operations. She sees a green lantern flying above her, but is nonplussed by the sight. You'd think these people never seen a flying, glowing guy before. But Guy Gardner's presence has directly led her to be two hours late for work. And the first thing she learns on the job is that you don't drive to work in New York City. You want some advice, Agent Chase? Learn to use the subway. She signs her HR paperwork, gets a badge, and having missed her meeting with the director because of being so late, she meets instead field personnel manager Sandy Barrett. They walk through the big ops room, which does resemble the wall of monitors that we saw on the cover. The two of them head directly for the airport to head to Ohio. Just to clarify, no, 
I did not move to Ohio until 1999. I had nothing to do with this. So Barrett tells her why they're flying to the Buckeye State. Something blew up at a school out there. I'd have briefed you if you'd been here on time. Chase is a little unsure that she should be doing fieldwork after having been on the job for literally 30 minutes. But it's not really her call, is it? And we learn that the Big Brother federal government has been adjusting standardized testing and presidential fitness awards. I always knew they were a scam. For the purposes of screening the population for potential metahumans. Matching those results with other data that they've collected, which I'm guessing also with dubious legality, they've developed a watch list of sorts. In Daly, Ohio alone, there's a list of 18 children tagged for federal observation. No, that doesn't seem creepy to me at all. Why, does it to you? They meet the sheriff, a nice guy named Crawford, who reports that nobody was killed outright in the event, which is pretty amazing, and that only one kid is missing. And he is on their list. It's Jerry. Chase quickly deduces that Jerry was the source of the explosion and that he is an unskilled pyrokinetic and a really confused one, Sheriff. They find the kid walking the side of the road, and even though Chase and the sheriff tell him not to be scared, he gets kind of scared, and fabooms! Another big explosion. The DEO and local law enforcement are able to take him in, and the DEO has plans for the young Meta. You can learn to use your powers with other kids like yourself, Baird explains to him. Barrett and Chase are ready to blow town because it's just paperwork from here. And Chase has mixed feelings about what the DEO is doing. You realize how twisted this is, right? She tells her supervisor. If he attacked those people with an axe, he'd be in a high-security mental hospital. Instead, we're going to send him to Club Med for super kids. Barrett pushes back at this, saying training him to be a hero instead of a monster is a net positive for society. The kid is being kept in a county cell overnight for processing in the morning, but the sheriff pays him a visit and points out that the townsfolk aren't sure what happened at the school, but they know that he is responsible and they are not happy with him. The sheriff threatens to let the townsfolks have at him. Just try that super voodoo, son. Make me shoot you in self-defense. Well, Jerry is still a confused junior high kid, and again, he erupts, and the sheriff's bullets have no effect, and he leaps out at Chase. You! Do you want to know what this feels like? But suddenly, in the second or two that she has, before Jerry can attack her, something happens. Cameron Chase can feel Jerry's power, and she just swats it away from him easy as that. Now that he has no powers left, he hits the ground and crumples. Neither Barrett nor Chase knows exactly what just happened, but they can't stay in town to find out because they're needed in Kansas City. Next, 
suicide mission. The end. All right, now in terms of analysis, there are two quick things to mention here just to get this started. This is the second appearance ever of both Cameron Chase and the DEO. They debuted the month before in Batman 550. And also, yes, because of the nature of the character being a civilian working for a federal government, but mostly the name and the look, I kept thinking of Queen and Country in Terra Chase. Now, that book debuted a few years after this, so it's not Cameron Chase's fault or her creator's fault that I kept comparing this book, in my mind, to a better comic. That does not mean in any way that I did not like this, or that I did not like her. There's a lot in this issue that I do like. Let me be clear about that. It's just sort of a weird, coincidental irony, maybe, that we just covered Q&C, what was that, four or five episodes back? I mean, these things happen. Now, this issue is from 1998, and I was out of comics at this point. I started winding down when M was born, when I was in grad school, and except for a very few exceptions, I was out by the mid-90s. Mostly I was continuing a few ongoing titles until they got canceled or just got to big numbers. But definitely in terms of buying new books, that ended for me around 1995. And I wasn't brought back to comics at all until maybe in 2007 or 8. And as for new comics, buying things fresh off the racks, that didn't happen until the New 52 in 2011. So I say all of that to say that I had never heard of the comic book Chase before seeing this at Half Price Books back in the good old days when the Half Price Books locations in Central Ohio had quarter books, which hasn't been the case for a couple of years, which is a bummer. But enough about sad, depressing topics. Let's go back to this being from the 1990s. Because the 90s have a reputation. And I, for the most part, agree with and support that reputation. My joke is that if I had to pick any time to be totally out of comics, 1993 to 2006 was like the perfect time to be out of comics. Not to say that there was nothing good, of course, but I do believe that the ratio of very good comics to very bad comics was quite low during this period. Maybe the lowest of any period, as a matter of fact. So like many, many books, this one happened completely. It, it, it came and went without me ever seeing it. Matter of fact, it wasn't until flipping through the cheap bins one day that I had even heard of it. But there is, fortunately, nothing of the extreme aspect of the 90s in this. This is grounded. This is, I mean, not realistic, of course. But maybe it's reasonable? I mean, to me, if there was a federal agency like the DEO, no matter what else was happening in the world, they would be extremely bureaucratic. There would be a lot of paperwork and would be staffed by average, decent, normal people looking for the job security that federal work often offers. 
and personality-wise, experience-wise, that is Cameron Chase. Now, it does appear that she does have some power-dampening powers, so maybe she's not as normal as we all and she think she is, but still. The characters, by the way, all looked reasonable. Even the kid when he's getting all fiery and explosive. The other junior high kids at the school, the DEO workers, the sheriff, everybody looks and dresses and acts normal, regular. When a book, even one that takes place in a world of supers, focuses on the Mondays, it's important for the artist to make them and make the world look like Mondays. And J.H. Williams III, who can certainly do classic superhero bodies and poses and make all of that stuff work, he and Mick Gray manage to dial it down in this. They keep it grounded. And I, for one, appreciated that very much. Now, there actually is one distinctive 90s-tastic element to this book, but it is not in the story. I speak of the included, bound-in, perforated DEO file cards. These include facts about the character represented on the card, cross-reference with other characters they interact with, not so much in a who's-who style, but in a sort of law enforcement intelligence file style. So that actually kind of worked. The cards in this issue were for the Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern, Superman, The Word, and Lorraine Riley, Firehawk. I did check, and those are the cards included in every copy of this issue, so they resisted the urge of printing multiple versions of the cards, necessitating buying multiple issues for anyone who wanted to catch them all. And props to DC for that, for resisting what may well have been a powerful urge. And the letters page, or what would eventually be the letters page in future issues, in this first issue, that page contained bios of the creative team, but they are presented as DEO reports. Now, these are not cardstock or perforated or anything like that, but they appear otherwise to be the same format as those hero-related cards. So that was a nice little detail. And let me jump back to the story itself, though, which I thought, again, was pretty good. For one thing, it's not a cliffhanger, and that's really nice. The story in Ohio wraps up. Yes, we end with the pair heading off to, what was it, Kansas City, I think? But this story, this first issue, gives a very nice, complete story, beginning, middle, and end. They went to Ohio, found the kid, caught the kid, the kid escaped, and they caught him again, case closed. All wrapped up nice and neat with a bow on top. And like I said, I did like Cameron Chase, the character. What we get of her in this issue, at least. I like that she questions the way her department operates, what their priorities are. She also talks to a few people on the phone, and we get some insights into her life. A little bit of backstory that I imagine will develop in later issues. She does some of the narration as well, and that sounds appropriately noir or private investigator-ish. And that also reveals some personality. And I like the supervisor, that relationship as well. Of course, thanks to the Supergirl TV show, I've gotten to know the DEO a little bit. So it was good to see this early version of them 
what they were up to when they got started, what they were trying to accomplish, how they operated, etc. Like I said before, there's a lot to like in this issue, and I'm glad I rescued it from the cheap bins. The verdict on Chase, number one. Good lead character, good situation, good setup. Adventurous first issue, laying the groundwork for what is to come. A little bit of a mystery about our lead character. Solid comic book storytelling. Not as good as Queen and Country. I'm sorry to have to go back there. But there is no shame in coming up a little short of that high standard. No shame at all. Last time I checked, the rest of this series, issues 2 through 9, are all available in the DC Universe app, along with this one. I did not read ahead, or even read the intro issue, Batman 550, which is also on the app. I just wanted to read this one on its own, with no context of before or after. But, if you listen to this month's, or maybe next month's, Comics Reading Journal, depending on release schedules and all of that, I fully expect that you'll be able to hear me talk about all of those issues. Because I like this, and I want to see where it's going. I plan to read both that intro issue and then the rest of this title. And that, when an issue of a title makes you want to read the rest of the title, that is the exact, specific, precise definition of a quarter bin deal. And that, Wraps up our coverage of Chase, number one, bringing Quarterbin Podcast 141 to a close. Next time, we'll be jumping back over to Marvel by looking at a reprint book with a title that is quite a mouthful. The original Ghost Rider Rides Again, number one, from Marvel Comics cover dated July 1991. That issue reprints Ghost Rider. 68 and 69, originally published in 1981. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, or the episode, the DEO, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bit. Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.